Welcome to the BadgeCast One podcast with your host, Brian Ellis, a 20-plus year veteran police leader who's dedicated to helping police officers be their highest and best. Our show aims to dive deep to deliver leadership strategies of top experts to turbocharge public safety leadership. This podcast is brought to you by the National Command and Staff College. To find out more about our team, please visit us at www.commandcollege.org. The National Command and Staff College is passionate about enhancing your leadership capabilities and building the best version of you. Good day, everyone. Welcome back to the BadgeCast One podcast. I'm your host, Brian Ellis. And if you're joining us for the first time, welcome. If not, welcome back. Today, we'll be speaking with Michael Lee Stollard, author of Fired Up or Burned Out, How to Reignite Your Team's Passion, Creativity, and Productivity. And his second book, which will be the conversation of today, is Connection Culture, The Competitive Advantage of a Shared Identity, Empathy, and Understanding. Michael is a thought leader who is widely recognized in effective human connection and has a lengthy resume, including being an author, a speaker, and collaborator, not to mention a friend, mentor, and someone who is passionate about helping others. I hope you enjoyed our show today and always look for your feedback, which you can provide at my email at blscommandcollege.org. Finally, I urge you to check out the National Command and Staff College at www. .commandcollege.org to see a wide array of opportunities available to you to turbocharge your leadership potential. You can sign up for updates, look at our calendar of events, or reach out to us to host a training in your area. Thanks again for listening today, and here we go. Well, good morning, Mike. Uh, How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Brian. Um, Nice to be with you today. Thanks. Thanks for joining us today. Um, I first want to ask you what uh, what you're up to right now. Well, we're we're doing a lot of workshops and keynote speeches, um, and it's in it's in just a mix of organizations. We're going to be speaking to uh, 350 healthcare professionals, including physicians at Yale New Haven Health, which is one of the top 10 um, healthcare systems in the U.S. And we just train high potential leaders uh, for Toll Brothers, America's large, largest home builder. So we're doing that. We're also working on an article about cultures in healthcare and how loneliness is a systemic risk to healthcare organizations these days because it affects patients, uh, physicians, it affects the a physician burnout issue and, and the high rate of suicide, uh, non-physician uh, professionals in healthcare, and it affects people in the C-suite because half the CEOs report that they're lonely. So um, those are just some of the things we're working on off the top of my head. <laughs> nice. Uh definitely staying busy then I see yeah uh, what about reading are you reading anything fun well I have been um, reading a book about the effects of dopamine it's called the molecule of more and uh, I've been enjoying that that's um, you know that that's the book I've been focused on of late uh, but I have I have a big pile uh, <laughs> I'm working my way through as I imagine you do Brian knowing knowing you a bit <laughs> so yeah, the problem is you get halfway into a book, and then at least my problem is I go squirrel, and I jump into something mm-hmm. else, and then my stack is like, okay, I've got four or five half-read books, and I just sit down and just kind of go through them in order as opposed to just uh, just letting them stack. So a little chaotic there, but uh, mm-hmm. I, you know, 
we wanted to have you on because I'm really, you know, I met you. It's, this is kind of a funny story. I, I, I met you. I bought your book, your first book, Fired Up or Burned Out. And it was one of those books I just, you know, just felt myself saying yes, yes, yes. And, and, and especially I saw a lot of uh, the things that you were describing in that book in, in policing. And, and I just, it was just, it, the book hit me really hard. And there's been a couple of books in the course of my life where I've, I've had a really strong connection to, and, you know, you, you search for the back of like, Hey, how do you connect with this person? And I remember shooting you an email, um, and was, you know, really excited to talk to you initially. As a matter of fact, I was on a bike ride, getting ready to do this, uh, race across America event. And when you called, I pulled over to the side of the road and our first phone call was, uh, you know, somewhere up in the in, in, in the mountainous region of uh, Auburn, California. And I'm just sitting there chatting with uh, a guy that I, I, I really enjoyed the first book. And so uh, from there, when I got to read uh, Connection Culture, again, to me, it was another home run. And, uh, you know, I was fortunate enough to at least uh, do a little project with you, which I'm, I'm grateful for. But um I really want to focus in on connection culture today because it is such a great book and there's a lot of different just golden nuggets in there. And so can you first describe, um, you talk about the three distinct uh, psychosocial, uh, psychosocial cultures, uh, which are connection, control and indifference. Can you can you can you talk to us a little bit about that and why they're important to understand? Sure. Yeah. And the way we describe it, Brian, when we're teaching workshops and Giving keynote speeches is that a good way to think about cultures is they either connect people, which is good, or they're disconnecting for various reasons. And in the disconnecting cultures, uh, you know, people feel they feel lonely. They may be socially isolated. They also may be so busy that they don't take time to develop supportive relationships. So it's kind of a form of constructive loneliness, although they because they're around people, they may not say they're lonely, um, but they don't have meaningful relationships in their life, and so they dysfunction. And of the uh, cultures that are disconnecting, we describe them as a culture of control, and that's where people with power, control, influence, and status rule over the rest. <laughs> and this culture creates an environment where people fear to make mistakes or take risks. And um, also you see in those cultures that there's very low employee engagement because people need some autonomy in their work um, rather than being ruled over all the time. The second type of culture is the culture of indifference. And that tends to be the culture where people are just busy and it crowds out time for relationships. But that's not a healthy culture either. It's the culture where people feel connected to their supervisor, to the people they work with, and um, ultimately to the people they're serving. And that's one of the reasons I really love community policing uh, efforts. Uh, I think that, um, you know, it provides an additional layer of connection. And we have all kinds of examples, even, even in our local community, where we see the benefits of that, where people have personal relationships with police officers and, and you know, contact information where they see something and they, they call their friend who's on the police force. So um, anyway, in a nutshell, that's what um, cultures of control indifference and connection or how we frame cultures um, and of course a, a culture is the language uh, the attitudes language and behavior of a group 
Yeah, that's, I mean, that's really awesome. I mean, obviously people can see that a culture of control is definitely just, it's archaic and doesn't really work, but that the culture of indifference, I mean, we live in a fast paced world and it is that just like you said, the, the, the power of connection, even as a police officer with a citizen, and maybe even if it's the first time, just taking that extra step and developing a little bit of rapport and really ha- engaging in somebody uh, can make the, all the difference in the world uh, in that moment. And, you know, maybe potentially even future opportunities to, to, to gain support in that community or just get other information or or link somebody to some kind of services that, that they need. So I, I think mm-hmm. that's incredibly important to, to, to think about because we are, we're, we're so driven by our phones, uh, by social media, uh, well, technology in general. Uh, I know in government, uh, there's this, we have fewer and fewer resources, but our expectations and our workload keep uh, driving up. So um, I just see, it seems to be very important and, and thanks for sharing that. So, sure. Yeah, I think workplace cultures are just, be, you know, more and more they're crushing people because of the work demands that you just referenced, but also because they've crowded out time for connection that protects us from the negative effects of stress. And when our body doesn't have that, um, we're hardwired to connect. When we don't have that, we're less able to cope with stressors and it puts our body in a state of stress response. So that means blood glucose and oxygen is being over allocated to the fight or flight systems and under allocated to uh, parts of the brain, the immune, uh, the immune system, the um, reproductive system, and also the digestive system are not getting the resources they need to be healthy. So no surprise, it shaves years off a person's life if they're stuck in that state of chronic stress response. Wow. Yeah. All guts, all health starts in the gut, right? So Mm -hmm. yeah, you, um, you make reference in the book that, you know, connection is so important that it's backed by science that there's, uh, you know, citing a lot of neuroscience in, in the book. And so, uh, why do you think there is that disconnect uh, within organizational life? I mean, I get it. People get busy and, and, uh, but why do you see so much of it? I mean, it, there, there just seems to be a lot of it. Well, I think it's, it is, you know, I use myself as an example. I, I worked on wall street. I commuted from Connecticut into Manhattan. I got involved in some really challenging mergers and it, it crowded out time in my life, Brian, to um, really connect in the workplace. But also when I was home, I was thinking about work. I really wasn't present. So I was, um, you know, I was thinking about work, basically, you know, all my waking hours uh, across the week and I started not feeling well, but I had no idea. I would not have said I was lonely. But um, I had no idea that my body is hardwired for connection. When I don't have it, I'm you know, more vulnerable to stressors like we just talked about. And um, that's why I wasn't feeling well. So eventually I ended up leaving Wall Street. I took some years off and that's when I started doing research and found that all cultures are not alike. There is a best culture and that's a culture that connects people. So, but you know, what I find is, and it's interesting, we're doing a lot of work in healthcare and this is something that doctors don't really learn in medical school. 
And that's why you see physician burnout. About um, a little under half of the physicians show signs of professional burnout. And the suicide rate in physicians is about 50% higher than the average, the normal population. So, the, you know, this is something they are not completely aware of, that they need connection. And it's been interesting to see that some of the organizations that have created healthy cultures, like the Mayo Clinic is one of my favorites. And they've, um, they've implemented a couple of things that have really helped. One is they created a program called Compass where they provide a stipend of $20 twice a month to physicians who get together in small groups and have a meal together. And they have found that that helps reduce burnout. The second thing they've done is, you know, for years, um, uh, healthcare hospitals did away with physician lounges. And so there wasn't really a place where they could congregate. But the Mayo Clinic has brought them back because they're finding if they can do those things that will help create support groups for their physicians, for their nurses and other non-physician professionals across the system, for their scientists, because it's a big research institution, it reduces burnout. And so it seems so simple, doesn't it? And yet it just shows how hardwired we are to connect and, and connection just makes us more resilient to deal with challenges in our life that are inevitable. Yeah, uh, that's that's amazing. And, and you know as well that connection, especially in that industry, uh, saves lives. It gives people hope, you know, patience, uh, hope uh, for for uh, for the future. And 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 I know that you have some experience in in that area as well. Yes, my my wife Katie is a three time cancer survivor, and there was a time when her risk of survival was less than ten percent. And our daughters were just twelve and ten at the time, and. And that was a time of stress and anxiety for me. Um, Katie, my wife, didn't want to see the research on, on the, you know, the, her diagnosis, but I wanted to read all the research. And when I discovered her chances of survival were remote, um, you know, I felt um, a lot of stress and anxiety about losing my beloved best friend mm -hmm. and our daughters losing this really wonderful mother. And then we... Um, Katie did uh, the normal course of treatment for ovarian cancer. And then we did, um, we went to Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, which has been the number one or two cancer center in the U.S. and the oldest cancer center uh, for more than, you know, almost 30 years. It's been rated number one or two in the U.S. And we went there and just found this incredible culture of connection. You know, I remember we were walking down the street, Brian, and I was expecting to I was not looking forward to walking into this place. I just expected a culture of death and dying. But what I found was the opposite. It was a culture of life and living. And um, even the doorman, a guy named Nick Medley, he locked his eyes on Katie when she got within eyesight and smiled. And, uh, you know, we walked in the, it just gave us this, you know, we still see Nick when Katie is, is there at least a few times a year. And they're one of our clients. We do work with them now. So on uh, creating a life-giving culture. And we walked in the reception area. There was a receptionist calling everyone honey. Uh, the security people, the administrative people were helpful and friendly. We met our oncologist. Dr. Marty Hensley is her name, and she was upbeat and optimistic. And, you know, I, that, if, by the end of that day, I just felt optimistic that even though the odds were against Katie's survival, I just felt that with this team and the fact that they cared and their competence, 
that we could get Katie through this. And this year we celebrated her uh, 15th year of being cancer-free from ovarian cancer. That's amazing. And yeah, another explanation point for for this connection. And I mean, I even think about it, My one of my favorite vacations as a kid, my grandparents took me to British Columbia and we were at a bed and breakfast that you know, the people that ran it were just so nice. And just the memories that I have, I mean, I, I've probably been on dozens of vacations as when I, uh, as a kid, but that one, I really, really remember uh, just very vividly. And even some of the conversations that I have, and I think something in the brain just connected me to those, to that, to that memory more than going to some of the trips to Disneyland or, you know, other places that we went. So it's, it is, it's really important. So let's pivot to this, you know, I, you make a, you talk about the concept of human versus machines. And I know that as you start thinking about it, um, you know, we are in a rat race all the time, a bigger, stronger, faster. Uh, there's all this cumulative stress in our lives. So, you know, uh, I'd like to get your thoughts on that and maybe how do we kind of start unwinding that that momentum of of at least work life in that general direction. Well, that that's a huge issue, <laughs> as, <laughs> as uh, you can imagine, I, as you know. And um, it's you just think about our, our lives today. We're spending more time interacting with machines, whether it's our smartphones or our you know our computers, or even just you know in veg you know recovery time, we're binge watching things on Netflix and etc. There's a lot of great things out there. <laughs> Nothing against <laughs> Netflix. But we have to be intentional about disconnecting and making sure we connect with people. And here's why. Because all of the, all the machine interactions really produce dopamine. And dopamine is, um, you know, there's about 100 neurotransmitters. Dopamine is a pretty powerful one. And it's called the molecule of more because dopamine um, is addictive. Um, it's, the, it's, it's based on... Um, so if you're expecting a reward, um, it's the expectation of that reward that produces dopamine. So it's always wanting more. Once you receive that award, the dopamine kicks off. And then in a sense, it, you, you could experience withdrawal. And the only way to satisfy that is through some other pathway that produces positive emotion, whether it's additional dopamine, which is what the dopamine receptors tend to want. But... When you look at healthy individuals, they have, you know, a way to think of it, they, they have uh, support and challenge in their lives. The support comes in the form of relationships that produces another pathway to positive emotion. It's based on um, neurotransmitters like uh, serotonin, oxytocin, also endorphins. There are other um, hormones and neurotransmitters in the mix, but they tend to produce a different type of positive emotion that makes us feel more content and less um, desirous of more. And so it, when you look at the healthy leaders, like I know you and I have talked about um, uh, Admiral Vern Clark, who's the chief of the US Navy, or Alan Mulally, who saved Ford Motor Company, or Francis Hesselbein, who turned around the, the Girl Scouts. I, I, I know all of them. And in you, when you get to know them, you see that they have, they're amazing at relationships and they really value relationships with uh, spouses, with close friends, with people in the workplace. 
and they also have challenge in their life. So they have that support in the form of relationships that's producing neurotransmitters like serotonin and oxytocin, and they have the challenge that produces dopamine. But because they're not addicted to just dopamine um, alone, which is what you see in lonely individuals who don't have those supportive relationships, um, they, their, their um, leadership is sustainable. If you're just addicted to uh, just focused on results, you're not really present when you're interacting with people. Um, and presence produces, when you're present with people, that also produces serotonin. If you're always thinking about the future and kind of disconnecting in relationships, then that produces dopamine. And um, if you're just relying on dopamine as a source of positive emotion in your life, you're going to experience a crash sometime because dopamine is never satisfied. And um, you're always going to want more. And eventually, um, you'll hit a point where you can't achieve more and that's when the crash happens. So um, it's, it's very important for all of us to live healthy lives that are sustainable um, to develop supportive relationships and challenge. That combination is really critical. And you see it in all the great leaders. Yeah, you just described my last movie experience when I realized there was no more popcorn in the uh in the bag, right? It's like, oh God, I'm, I'm all done. <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. Um, so the crux of the connection culture is this concept of vision, value, and voice. And so can you, can you flesh this out for us a little bit and uh, explain what you mean by this and, and how, how can an organization bring all those three things together? Sure. Yeah, we, um, let me just use one example because I think it helps. Uh, it helps. Um, well, I'll just summarize vision, value, voice. The way we describe it is um, when a leader communicates an inspiring vision about serving a cause greater than self, when they value people, and when they give people a voice, it creates connections. So those three things, vision, value, and voice. And here's a quick example. So um, in 2000, uh, Admiral Vern Clark became the chief of the Navy. He's called the CNO. He's the highest ranking officer in the U.S. Navy. And at that time, the Navy was not achieving its uh, first term reenlistment goal. Now, when I wrote the article, I thought the what I heard from the Navy was the reenlistment rate was higher than it actually was. What I subsequently learned was, in reality, the first term reenlistment rate for enlisted sailors was under 20%. So 80% of the enlisted sailors were opting to leave the Navy at the first opportunity. Wow, that is a, that is a disaster from a you know from a personnel standpoint because you're losing all that expertise and the and the Navy is complex these days when you have you know right. a lot of the Energy is sourced from nuclear materials, and just the complexity of all the systems in the Navy um, require, you know, competence across the board in these areas. And they were losing all these people. So Admiral Clark knew that he had been the commander of the Atlantic Fleet, and um, when he came in, he started changing the culture. And you see it in a number of ways. He um, talked about the Navy's mission was to take the warfighting readiness of the United States to any corner of the world at a moment's notice. And he would say, and I'm quoting some out of his speeches, which I have in front of me, 
Um, he talked about, it's our turn to make history, to build the Navy for the 21st century that will be strategically and operationally agile, technologically and organizationally innovative, networked at every level and highly joint with the other services and effectively integrated with our allies. And what he would say to enlisted sailors and the master chiefs who are the leaders of the enlisted class in the Navy, he would say, what we do matters. What we do is hard work. We intentionally put ourselves in harm's way. Uh, we are away from our loved ones for months on end, but we do it because it's important work and we're people of service. We are committed to something larger than ourselves, the protection of America's interests around the world and democracy. And I remember Brian talking, I was interviewing an admiral in the Navy and he told me he was on an aircraft carrier one time when Admiral Clark was speaking to sailors and he saw a young sailor walk by him and his eyes were filled with tears and uh, he asked him, are you okay? And the sailor said, uh, sir, I'm going to my commanding officer to tell him to rip up my discharge papers <laughs> because for the first time, a leader told me why I need to serve in the Navy. And, um, you know, if you could have heard this admiral tell the story, you know, it really, you could tell it really connected with him. And when you look at, so that's the vision element. Value and voice, um, Admiral Clark was amazing at that too. So value, he did things that made sailors feel valued. He, um, uh, he talked about, uh, he thought of, he described the Navy as having an asymmetrical advantage of the best technology in the world combined with the genius of our people. And um, when Navy budget officials proposed cutting training and development um, in the in the budget, he told them to go back and uh, he wanted to actually increase training and development. <laughs> so um, he committed, he uh, uh, created these 12 Navy centers of excellence around the world that are, uh, you know, they're uh, Naval Education and Training Commands. And he invested in training to help enlisted sailors do their work better but also uh, give them skills that they could use post their career in the Navy. And, um, you know, one of the things Admiral Clark said is if you're not growing, you're dead, <laughs> you know, which biologically is true when an organism stops growing, it's dead. Hmm. So um, he created mentoring uh, for, he asked the master chiefs to mentor the enlisted sailors under their command. Um, and he always told a story about uh, his first, when he was on his first ship, he had a master chief came up to him and said, you know, Mr. Clark, I like you and I'm going to make you a fine officer. <laughs> and he said this older master chief, a guy named Chief Leedy, um, really made him a better sailor, a better person and a better leader. And he asked the master chiefs to do that with the young people under their command, you know, to mentor them, to help them become better sailors, better people and eventually leaders. <laughs> and you know, those are just a few things. There's so many things. Um, Admiral Clark also gave sailors, enlisted sailors, a voice. Um, they used to call it slamming in the Navy, where people were put into positions and in locations that they didn't like. So Admiral Clark worked with his colleagues, and they created a bidding system where if you're qualified, you could bid on a position somewhere around the world that you wanted to serve. <laughs> Wow. And um, yeah, it, it reduced slamming from about 30% of the positions down to, um, I want to say it was about under 2%. So it really, really gave people a voice about where they could serve and in what role. So those are just a few of the things. I mean, the thing you see about Admiral Clark is he cares about sailors and their families. 
And I would add Connie Clark, too. His wife was amazing. And, you know, they um, first term reenlistment soared from under, under 20% to almost 60% in 18 months. So it had That's a amazing. huge effect on the Navy in attracting and retaining the talent that the Navy needed to perform at the top of its game. Yeah, that's that's amazing. And I love that quote. I mean, it's, that's one of my favorite quotes. And I think there's so much carryover from that quote, that the quote from him, what we do matters, what we do is hard yeah. work. And we intentionally put ourselves in harm's way because it's important for people. Uh, you know, we're, we're people of service. Um, I mean, that to me, that that uh, that's policing. You know, that's that's uh, it is. That's the same kind of goal, overarching goal. There is it's it's this public service, and so um, with that, and I mean, what would you if you had an opportunity to sit in front of a uh, a police leader right now, and knowing what you know about you know the story that you just told me, what advice would you have for a a public safety leader in regards to you know priorities? Well, a couple things I would say. Number one, you can't give what you don't have. So you need to make sure that you have connection in your life. You need to cultivate um, you know, uh, family, friends who you can process your life with. Um, so for example, for, for me, I'm traveling a lot, our business is growing uh, at a rapid pace. And so we're under a lot of pressure, but I uh, am close to my wife, but also I'm in a small men's uh, Bible study on Saturday mornings from 9 a.m. till noon. And that's really my group for me that um, I can share what's going on in my life and and uh, get their, have their support. You know, we've been together for a number of years and I think, uh, see, we just last week we had 16 guys. The youngest was in his late 20s and the oldest was in his 80s. And uh, yeah, it's just, it's so life-giving for me. So to cultivate those kind of relationships, you really need that. And if you don't have it to have a, a, you know, to develop a mentor or a coach, some people that you can process your week-to-week life with, and that helps you make better decisions. It calms your nervous system. It makes you, it gives you that support you need to, to cope with challenges in life. So that's number one. Then secondly, um, for leaders in policing, uh, don't underestimate the power of talking about uh, serving a cause greater than self and, and sharing stories about the positive things that the people under your command are doing. And, and you know, Admiral Clark, I remember he, um, oh, he had a term for it, and I think I'm going to forget well, how he described it. But he would have someone just stand up and, and share something good that was going on, you know, that he knew about in advance. And I think he called it uh, letting letting uh, some of his leaders take laps, you know, <laughs> like victory laps. And so it's important to do that. And then also just, you know, mentoring, coaching, looking out for the people under your command to, if you see signs they're isolating themselves, that is a dangerous sign. They really need to uh, feel like they're supported by their colleagues and by you as their supervisor. Um, so, you know, keep an eye out for anyone who's isolating themselves. You want to make sure that that they they feel supported and they have a place to process uh, what's going on because policing is stressful. Right. And that'll help them make better decisions. It'll help their uh, protect their body. The other thing is if they're if they're under stress and they don't have connection, then there's a high risk of um, a, a thing called displacement aggression. And when we have high levels of stress, 
it's more likely we're going to take it out on others in either physical or verbally violent ways. And that will reduce stress on the part of the perpetrator. So if you want to have, um, you know, a more effective group in policing, then make sure they have ways to cope with stress, including exercise, but especially connection. Connection is number one. Things like exercise, meditation, prayer, those are also important. But job one is making sure they stay connected because they're most likely to drift if they're under stress and become less connected. That's our drift pattern. As human beings, we isolate ourselves and try to hunker down and, and do it on our own. We can't do it on our own. And so we really need other people to support us. And then finally, making sure people have, um, uh, you know, asking them what's right, what's wrong, what's missing from your thinking, and and just getting them talking. Uh, that calms their nervous system when they talk. They actually like you more when they when they talk more than you do. And so looking for ways to get them processing together, giving them a voice, is really important too. And that will those things will all boost their performance and the performance of your of your team collectively. So do do you think there's uh, you know going back to your example of uh, you know spending time with others? Do you, do you think it's beneficial to have kind of a, a diverse group that in which you connect with? I mean, I know one of the biggest issues that police officers have is you know they tend to work shift work. That shift work doesn't always correlate with having normal people's days off. So there's a lot of times police officers are connecting with other police officers and they're kind of somewhat socially isolated to, to a degree. I think, you know, as we emerge, uh, that's becoming more of a, of a topic and, and an awareness issue in, in the profession that I think that just having that awareness that people are making, being more intentional to get out and have more connections with people outside of policing, but do you think that matters at all too? Well, I think it, it does because it allows you to get away for, from work and right. conversations. And so, you know, developing a, a diverse group of friends who are not involved in policing, that's just healthy for you. It's going to give you a break away from talking about work all the time. Right. And so, you know, it, it, just intentionally seeking that, that balance so that you have friendships outside of policing, I think that's just going to make you healthier because it it's more likely that you're going to be connecting um, with, with them on personal things. And, you know, we have personal stressors in our lives too. When you look at the research, it would say, you know, often personal economic issues, um, relationship issues, if we have disagreements in our family or stress in our family, which most of us do, <laughs> you know, um, and um, then also uh, just stress from work. And so having ways to process that outside of the workplace is, is healthy. And, you know, with Spouses, if you're married, um, with a support group, with friends who are not involved in, in policing, share the things that you can share, of course, um, then that's going to help make your body cooperate and you'll perform better when you're in the workplace because we're hardwired to connect and when you have that need met, we perform better. Yeah. And you mentioned him earlier, the, um, you know, uh, CEO of, of Ford's ex-CEO, Alan uh, Mulaney, uh, hit the power of teams. Um, you, you talk about the power of teams and, and you highlight uh, Alan's story in your book. And I think you touched on it a little bit. Can you can you expand a little bit of why Alan's leadership at Ford was so significant? What, what kind of what made him an outlier? Well, he when he went in, um, 
you know, forgive me, I'll tell a, a little longer story here. I'll try to keep it short. But you know, it's such a great story, Brian, because here's Malali coming in. He has no experience in automotive, right? He's coming into a company that's losing something like $15 billion a year, you know, and on its way to bankruptcy if it doesn't turn it around. And he, one of his, one of the first questions that he was asked as he was introduced to the press was, um, you know, Mr. Mullally, what kind of car do you drive? <laughs> he, his response was, I drive a Lexus, the finest car in the world, <laughs> you know, and here he is at Ford, right? You know, I'm sure that was, that's kind of stopped all conversation. And then the next question, someone said, Mr. Mullally, you come from the aerospace industry. You're an aerospace engineer. What makes you think you can, you know, without any experience in automotive, turn around a company that's in such trouble? And he said, well, you know, uh, in at Boeing, where he had headed Boeing, you know, years ago, and he said the uh, average airplane has four million parts. The average car has about four thousand parts, and we have to keep airplanes in the air. <laughs> and so, I think you know his response was, "I, I think this is a, this is can be done. <laughs> you know, this is not that as complex as you think." And the great thing about Alan is, and I've. Uh, I've spoken with him and I've talked to other people at Ford who said when he was there, he was so great about just interacting with everyone. I think it took him forever to walk through the halls because he's making eye contact and interacting with everyone. He's very personable. He loves people and he's just great at connecting with them. And he's super competent as an engineer and a leader. And so um, when you look for what he did, and he has told me that what we wrote about him in the book was the most concise, accurate description of what happened in the turnaround of Ford. And um, when you look for vision, what he communicated in terms of vision at Ford was he kind of went back to Henry Ford's original vision for Ford Motor Company, which he described as opening the highways for all mankind so that people could connect with their families, with make new friends. It would just be better for America. And um, in terms of valuing people, Alan always talked about, um, you know, having one Ford. Now, when he went into the culture, it was a culture that was kind of passive aggressive, where people would use humor to put each other down, you know, and there were battles between the silos and battles between leaders in, inside Ford. And Alan would not put up with it. In fact, he forbid people to use humor at the expense of others. That's a real sore point for him. And he talked about uh, one Ford, the power of teams, working together always works. He used language that was focused on getting Ford people to work together. And he had weekly meetings that involved people worldwide. And if there, was prob there were problems in one part of Ford, he would look for the people wherever they were, you know, across the silos mm -hmm. to pull them in and, and fly them to the source of where the problem was to solve it. And so it started to create more of a culture of cooperation and in these weekly meetings that were called um, BPA meetings, uh, business process or something or other, um, he encouraged people to speak up and help each other. And, um, you know, Ford, when he came in in 2014, was in real trouble. By the time he left in, um, I'm sorry, he came in in 2006. And by the time he left in 2014, Ford had experienced 19 consecutive quarters of profit and rising market share in the U.S. And unlike the other automotive companies in the U.S., they did not have a government bailout. They refused any money from the federal government, and they were wildly successful. When he announced his retirement from Ford, the people there gave him a standing ovation. Wow. So he's a phenomenal leader, and um, I know he's getting 
He's on Google's board and the board of the Mayo Clinic now, and he's getting offers all the time to lead companies. But I think he's kind of moved on and focusing more on leadership these days. Nice. And yeah. one thing that resonates from that story to me is just how much he values people. And I mean, I think everybody wants to be recognized by the boss, uh, whether it's just eye contact or uh, an acknowledgement of doing a good job. And I mean, you're, you're, you're at, you're at work, not just a, I mean, most people are at work for more than just a paycheck. And uh, I think that's a really good uh, opportunity for, for bosses to always connect with people. I mean, never miss an opportunity to, uh, uh, to connect. Matter of fact, I know one uh, an old mentor of mine said that he used to have to come in. He was a sh- local sheriff, and he would come in super early at like four thirty, five o'clock in the morning, just to get his stuff done. Because by the time people started getting in the office, he knew he wouldn't get a lot of work done because he's out and about talking to people. And I think that just goes to show you uh, just a, a good way of, of of leading people. They all want that attention. Well, I'm glad you brought that up, Brian, because when you study the great leaders, they're all, they're not ones to hold themselves up in the office. You know, now they have, you know, they have decisions that have to be made and they have to read things, of course, but you know, they're great about um, being out there and just mixing with people. And, um, you know, Alan says that step one in leadership is learning to love the people. And, and by, I think he uses that language as, you know, to get people's attention because you don't often hear that in business, especially loving your people. But what he means is you have to care for your people. And if you don't care for people, you're, they're not going to follow you. They may follow you out of your authority because you hire, fire, pay, and promote, but they're not going to follow you because they want to. And that's when you get the best performance, when they want to follow you. And that's because they feel connected to you. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. And I think, especially in police policing, that's kind of hard to do all the time because, uh, you know, police officers, we're, we're routinely in field work and that field work is somewhat isolating in of itself. And so you really have to capitalize on the opportunities that you do have with people, whether it's a specific function, whether it's, you know, the start a shift or, uh, or just joining up with people during their lunch break. Uh, it's just never missing those opportunities because you, it's not like it's a office place where you get to sit with somebody for several hours throughout the day. Yeah, take every opportunity to connect it. It reminds me of um, one time I interviewed uh, Jim Goodnight, who's the founder of SAS Institute, the largest privately held uh, technology company in the world, I believe. And um, he's very introverted. He was a statistics professor <laughs> and he started SAS Institute and he's, he's um, you know, connecting with him didn't come easy. But what Jim did is he went out and he would sit down in the SAS Institute cafeteria with groups of employees he didn't know. And that's very, it shows a lot of courage and wisdom on the part of the leader. And uh, Jim and his wife also live on the campus of the, uh, it's in Cary, South Carolina. And um, uh, so they, uh, you know, he's been very intentional about being out there connecting over lunchtime, like you just suggested. Um, and also he has these sessions he calls Java with Jim, where he just shows up and they serve coffee and, and soft drinks. And it's just a time where people can ask questions. And I think he's come to love that because he loves the people who work at SAS. And it's pretty neat to see how successful that company has been. Phenomenally successful. That's awesome. So, 
as we're wrapping up here, uh, can you offer some police officers uh, some just intentional ways in which, and you know, I, we, I know we've covered a lot of things right now and, 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 and uncovered some things to, to, to really think about, but do you have any kind of intentional steps of, of, uh, to kind of, you know, just baby steps or building blocks to help increase their connection? Uh, because I think really that connection does transcend their role as being a public servant, whether it's in the office or out in the work environment, you know, uh, interacting with the community or at home or a combination thereof. I mean, what are, what are some intentional things that somebody can do right now to start getting them more geared up towards being more connected? Well, number one, um, get a mentor. Ask someone to hold you accountable. Tell them you're trying to connect more and, um, and ask them to keep an eye on you and hold you accountable and give you ideas about how to connect. Um, one thing that's a big issue today is, uh, you know, a lot, a lot of time when, when people are not do, doing something, they'll default to uh, checking the news and checking their emails on their smartphone. And um, even when they're in conversations, and so step one is to um, make sure to have, have the mentor, but also uh, be very intentional about being present in conversations with the people you lead in your command. You know, you need to focus on them. And also put your cell phone aside, put it in your pocket, put it in your desk. Um, don't have it out while you're talking to people because just the temptation is too great. And research shows that you're going to be more effective in connecting with people when the cell phone is not visib visibly present. So that's one thing you can do. I'll also, um, Brian, I can send you a PDF of Fired Up or Burned Out. And, you know, my uh, publisher, HarperCollins, is so generous to do this, but they've said I can share that with anyone. Wow. So I'll send that. And then the, your officers who are listening to your podcast can just print it out or they can read it on their screen. I prefer personally printing it out and, and reading it. And it'll give them a lot of ideas about how to connect. And also it has 20 great stories of leaders throughout history who created connection cultures and people love those 20 stories. Yeah, it's very generous of you, uh, Mike. And that, I, I love that book. And again, it's, it's on the, uh, you know, like I said, there's 10, 15 books that I have that I, I, there are go-to books because there's just so much good stuff and they're high, you know, they might as well entirely be highlighted because I, you know, the highlighters got the best, the best of some of those books, but yeah, I, I appreciate that. Uh, thanks a lot. And, um, one last question that I had for you today is how does one keep up on the things that you're doing? Well, you could go to, um, connectionculture.com and, um, we've also started a, Connection Culture Academy, where we have uh, people from around the world are going through it in cohorts. So I think in this current cohort, we have people from Costco, from the Federal Aviation Administration, from um, uh, Turner Construction, a real mix. And maybe in the future, we'll do one that's, um, that, that is uh, people who are in policing. You know, that might be something we do down the road. But for now, it's, it's a mix. And I do find that having people from diverse backgrounds um, you know, different organizations sharing how they connect and the challenges they face. Sometimes you just learn more from people who are not in what you do. Don't focus right. on policing in particular. And they've just developed some things that can be applied in policing. 
So I think um, you you were Brian, you were in our uh, our pilot, mm-hmm. and people loved it. You just you had great ideas, and uh, people, irrespective of w- what they were doing, what their profession was, really loved the contributions you made. So thank you for doing that. And that yeah, that if you want to become more involved, that's that would be something to check out. We open it up. We offer. Um, the Connection Culture Academy twice a year in the spring. We are currently have one in process, um, and then we'll open it back up, up in the fall. So that could be one way that um, people could, you know, it's more expensive to bring us in personally, but that keeps the cost down and allows people to, uh, especially if they're spread out geographically, to participate. Yeah, I appreciate it. Well, thanks again for joining us today. Uh, I hope you're well and uh, have a great day. Thank you. And thanks for all you're doing, Brian. Thanks. Have a great one. Take care. Thanks again for listening to our show today. And as always, we encourage your feedback. You can provide that feedback at my email at bellis at commandcollege.org. As always, good thoughts, good words, good deeds. Figure out who you are and be purposeful. Be well. Thank you so much for tuning into the BadgeCast One podcast. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with a colleague. Please be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Statement and views on this podcast are those of the guests, and the opinions of the guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility of statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representation or warranties about guests or qualifications or credibility. This podcast is the product of the National Command and Staff College, copyright 2010 to 2035. Any use of this without the express consent of the National Command and Staff College is strictly prohibited by law. For more information, email us at info at commandcollege.org.